Hey everyone, welcome to Talking With Our Mouths Full. I'm Michael Chan. And I'm Nightingale Nguyen. And today our episode is a little bit different because we are in the midst of the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. And so Nightingale and I are not able to record on location like we normally do. Instead, we are doing this episode via Facebook Messenger voice chat. So we are going to sound a little bit different today and actually probably for the next little while. So I guess this makes this our first social distancing episode. Woohoo! Say what? Practice safety. Hashtag stay home. But it doesn't mean we are going to stop introducing you all to wonderful places to eat because I used Uber Eats to order some food from Golden Bubbles, which is unit D2 at 11,000 Young Street in Richmond Hill near Young and Elgin Mills. Now, this place took months and months to open up, but when they finally did last year, they quickly became a favorite amongst the local Richmond hillbillies. And yes, that's what I'm calling us. Richmond Hillbillies. Now, if you go to their website, goldenbubbles.ca, you'll see that they're a small Canadian chain with locations in Ottawa, Toronto, and Richmond Hill. I believe they started in Ottawa, though, as I didn't see them over here until quite recently. Now, here's a little more about them directly from their site. Here goes. The Hong Kong style egg waffle is a unique street hawker food. Piece by piece, they come in a golden colored honeycomb shape and gives out a rich aroma of cake flavor. It is in fact hollow in shape. It gives an extraordinary experience when bitten as it has a distinct crispy texture but soft on the inside. Traditionally, the Hong Kong egg waffles are made over charcoal flames. It was a long process and took time, average 10 minutes, but really worth the wait. However, most people nowadays use electric stovetops due to cost efficiency and safety reasons. Golden Bubbles brings this traditional favorite Hong Kong-style egg waffle to Canada. We called it Bubble Waffles. You called it Bubble Waffles. Really now, Golden Bubbles? You called it Golden Bubble Waffles? I'm pretty oh, sure no. someone else. Someone's starting something. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure someone else called it bubble waffles before you called them bubble waffles. Anyways, at a favorite twist with endless ice cream and topping combinations, we are now serving customers in Ottawa and Toronto store locations. You can also find us at night markets, special events, weddings, or party catering. Well, okay, maybe after the pandemic, but you can definitely find them on Uber Eats and also on DoorDash. Knight, you have a little bit of a history bite for us, yes? Yes, history bite! History bite! (laughs) So the Hong Kong bubble waffle has a bunch of names. It is known as the egg waffle, eggette, egg puff, and gai dan jai, or just dan jai. I think that's how you pronounce it, Michael. How do you pronounce it? Gai dan jai, or dan jai. Oh, okay. All right. It was a good try. No, you you were close. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. All right. It has been a quintessential Hong Kong street food snack since the 1950s. So rumor has it that it was created by various shopkeepers trying to figure out what to do with all the cracked or broken eggs that customers would not buy. So these eggs were 
later used to be mixed in a batter, flour, and evaporated milk, then poured into a mold. This was inspired by the European waffle molds that have now changed its shape into the egg-like puff shapes we have today to represent the egg. Aw, that's Aww. cute. So my earliest memory was like really long time ago um, when I first tried the um, Hong Kong egg waffle. So I was with my parents and family who came overseas and we decided to go check out Chinatown in downtown Toronto. And I saw this huge line of people in Chinatown's Dragon City. And there's this one lady who was just making them at her stall. And they smelled really good. They were also kind of familiar. And also they were inside this brown paper bag. So I was very, very curious as to why people were lining up for it. So I used my allowance money and I bought a bunch for my family. And so every time my family and I go to Chinatown together, we end up just buying them as like a you know a snack like for tradition's sake. And I also discovered that when I was in Vancouver, they had so many flavors of the waffle and that you can have it with ice cream. Like, okay, I know that they now have it in Toronto, but I was exposed to it in Vancouver because I was oh. just used to like the traditional one in, in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And so the one that I had in Vancouver, which was like near Stevenson, I had the green tea with crushed Oreos. And I had it with strawberry ice cream. Oh, that sounds good. Right? Yeah. And so Speaking of crushed Oreos, that's actually one of the bubble waffles I ordered today from Golden Bubbles. It's the Oreo bubble waffle. Oh, really? Waffle. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oh, take a quick bite into it while you keep talking. Okay. So hmm. I feel like I, I learned something when I was in Chinatown. So I discovered that the reason why they're so familiar smelling and tasting is because the batter is the same as they use as the fortune cookie. Wait, what? Yeah, because when I was in Chinatown, I saw this huge, you know those giant containers and mostly it's kind of filled with batter or like broth or something? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those giant. I saw this side. It said fortune cookie batter. Oh, wow. And it was right beside the egg waffle stand. So you know what? You put two and two together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, that explains so much. I love fortune cookies. And yeah, wow. Learn something new every day. I've been trying to find it on the internet like for proof, but I think that it's like a secret. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Well, I discovered it. You heard it right here on Talking With Their Mouths Full, everybody. <laughs> By the way, the, um, the Oreo bubble waffle from Golden Bubbles is delicious. It's... Uh, Nice and soft, and there's uh, crumbly bits of Oreo, uh, not the cream, but the cookie part in it, and uh, oh, it's so good. But so we're talking about flavors and ice cream and stuff, but I do want to mention that the traditional bubble waffle is only a single flavor, and it's supposed to be soft with a consistency kind of like a pancake. A lot of people in Toronto seem to think that bubble waffles are supposed to be hard and are crispy, but that's because a lot of the newer, more Instagram-centric shops make them that way to allow for the waffles to be twisted into a cone shape for toppings or fillings like ice cream and fruit. I've even seen some people complaining online about how some places like my favorite place, Tung Tung over at Denison Center Markham, people complain that they make they make their waffles wrong because they're soft. Well, guess what? Although we here at GWMF won't say anyone's bubbles are wrong, we will say that soft waffles are more traditional. And uh, I also ordered a second waffle from Golden Bubbles, which is 
their uh, regular bubble waffles, so no flavoring. And I'm going to take a bite right now. Mm-hmm. Soft. They make them right. Mm-hmm. Wait, I didn't say that. They make uh-huh. them traditionally. <coughs> they make them right. Um, <laughs> they make them the way I like it. It's, it's what I grew up with. It's what I'm used to. When I eat the harder bubble waffles, I find... I just, I don't know. It's not the same for me. But actually, you know what? We have someone else here we can talk to about bubble waffles and whether they like it hard or soft. Knight, introduce her. Okay, she is a multi-talented, beautiful lady with her own production company called Origins Media House. She also runs three different podcasts. Did I mention three? Yeah, three. Right, and she is my fabulous friend, cinematographer, director, and all things creative. Let's welcome to our podcast, Brittany Nguyen! <laughs> Thank you so much for the fabulous um, introduction, Nightingale. Oh, you know I do it for you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast. No, thank Aww. you for being here. We appreciate you taking the time to Facebook Messenger with us. Oh, exactly. You know, it's all about um, social distancing right now, and so I think we have to do our part. I'm starting to think maybe we should call it physical distancing because I find that it's almost like it's bringing the world together socially. Mind you, it's online. I I kind of do believe that because it's like people are – we're always constantly online, Mm -hmm. but now we're all online at home, and then we just have the technology and the social platforms to still talk to our friends, even still do podcast recording remotely. Mm-hmm. And some people are even making new friends online because I know some actors have been kind of putting together huge uh, Zoom meetings where they bring together their friends and then introduce them to each other. And then people are making new friends in this uh, new and digital world. And Yeah, I've seen that too. And it's amazing how people don't have the excuse saying that I don't have enough time for this. Well, what are you doing at home? No, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, have you had bubble waffles before? Yes, I've had have had bubble waffles. When you said that they come in hard, I thought they only came in soft bubbles. Oh. Yeah. So when because I live directly in Chinatown, and so <laughs> I go to um, the various shops around there. I the first bubble waffle I ever had was in Dragon City Mall, where it was just a random cart by the front yeah, entrance. Yeah, that's the one I was talking about. Yeah. And I was like, I was waiting for my bus, and I was like, what the heck smells so freaking good? And I look over, and this lady is like, I thought she was just making waffles, so I can just like, I was like, let me just like grab a waffle before my bus comes here. And I come over, and they're in these like cute little balls and bubbles. I was like, damn, I need to get one now. Right? Wow. So you yeah. both have essentially the same story. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Win-win situation, man. Oh. <laughs> Way to put that in there. <laughs> Our last names are both Win, by the way, just so people mm-hmm. understand. Yeah, <laughs> if you didn't get the context. This is amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so I found it really interesting how you made the comment about them making these egg waffles hard so it fits the Instagram aesthetic. I can't imagine eating it hard at all. I only imagine it eating it soft just because you get all the flavors steam. I don't know. It's just a better 
in my opinion, a better eating experience. No, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I, I guess they do it, like I said, because they want to use it as a cone. Like this one place that I used to go to, but it's not there anymore. It was called Chaplas. They, yeah, they would they would fold it together into a cone. It's quite hard. And then they put ice cream and fruit and like sauce all over it. And so you hold this thing to your mouth, eat the ice cream and fruits and stuff before you get to the waffle cone. And yeah, the, the bubbles themselves are like super mega crunchy. I don't like it. I don't, I don't think I would like that experience just because I think I prefer, even if I'm eating with ice cream, I think I like the juxtaposition between the cold ice cream and the hot egg waffle coming I, together. I would too. And merging in my mouth. Yeah, I would personally prefer if they had like the soft waffle on a plate flat and then put the ice cream on top. That's how I would do it. Personally. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Oh. Okay, time to start a cart now. Let's get a food truck. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Before we continue, I also want to point out that I also got a bubble tea from Golden Bubbles. No sugar, half ice, and Golden Bubbles, which is tapioca. And, um, oh, oh, that tastes good. Mm. So, Brittany, how do you like your bubble tea? Um, I generally just like my, I either go for, um, two, um, uh, these are my three go-to flavors. If I'm feeling, like, really, really basic, I would just go for the regular milk tea with, um, 30% sugar and less ice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know oh, who I go takes... For that too. Yeah. I don't know who does 100% sugar just because how can you just ingest that much sugar into your soul? I just yeah. think it's way too sugary and I get Maybe a huge headache. Salty. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. When I was younger, I didn't even know there were options to change the sugar level. So I had it 100% and I always felt it was way too sugary. But as soon as I discovered that you can lower the sugar content... I like went down to 50, then I think 30 or 25 or whatever they had. Now I, I don't even put sugar in it. No, when I was younger, I would love sweets so much. Mm-hmm. And then every time me and my mother would share something, she'd be like, no, this is way too sweet. And eight-year-old me would be like, what are you talking about, woman? This is perfect sugar level. But as I grow older, my sugar tolerance has been a lot lower. So I think I understand where my mother was coming from now. <laughs> It's no, weird. I mean, like, you turned into your mother. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I'm like that too. As I, as I get older, I find I don't like my things as salty or saucy or sweet as I used to. Flavorless? More flavorless. But to me, it's already super flavorful. Maybe something to do with my tongue. Unless it's just a me thing. I'm just, I'm an old man, right? <laughs> All right. So, Brittany, you mentioned China. Are you from Toronto? Like, were you born in Toronto? Uh, no, I was actually born in Kitchener, Waterloo, so that's where oh. I'm from. So my um, parents immigrated from Vietnam. I don't know when, but I think my dad was around 25 and my mom was around 20 mm-hmm. uh, when they immigrated here. And my dad came over here first with his uh, sister and everything, and then it was a process to get my mom over. And... Maybe I'll put like this little snippet here, but their love story was absolutely so cute where they were separated for um, two years just because of immigration and coming to Canada. And oh, yeah, they the wrote... sponsorship thing. Yeah. 
and they wrote letters to each other like almost every single day. And then Aww. one day, I found the box of letters. I found two boxes, and essentially both of them kept all the letters from each other. And it was just stacks and stacks and stacks. It was the freaking cutest thing I ever seen in my life. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, and I was like thinking, it's like, where does this fit into our modern day romance and dating today? <laughs> Sliding um, into each other's DMs. Exactly. You just have like a history of like chats into your DMs. Um, but yeah, so they came over here when they were around 20, and then uh, they had me, I think, a couple years later. My mom was around 24, my dad's around, I think, 29. Mm -hmm. And then I've lived in like Kitchener, Waterloo up until university. And it was like, when I hear about other people's experiences um, growing up as an Asian minority, I kind of feel that my story is a lot different where I did mm -hmm. go to a prime, uh, predominant white school when there was only maybe, I was like one out of three Asians. Mm -hmm. But it was really interesting how I hear some people who would get bullied for being Asian and weren't accepted. But I didn't have that experience where... I felt that maybe I was just a very naive child, but I felt that I was overall accepted into the school community. What uh, that, decade was this in? Decade. I don't, know, I don't know how old you are, so. <laughs> so I'm 23, so this would have been, uh, when did I, I don't know, like early 2000s. Well, that's good to hear because I'm born in 81. Uh, and when I was, yeah, in grade school, it was it was rough. I was one of a small amount of Asians, and uh, yeah, I got I got bullied quite heavily for being Asian. So it's nice to hear that someone you know who's quite a lot younger than me had a better experience growing up. It's what we all wanted, right? Yeah, I think that's all what we wanted. But me comparing my story to other Asians around my age who didn't grow up in the same place I did, it was like. We come from the same generation, but we had essentially two different experiences. And so, like, I've had things where I felt that, um, like, I've never been bullied for being Asian. I've always felt somewhat of an outsider, meaning that I didn't fit with the other interests that my friends had, mm -hmm. i.e., like, white people had. <laughs> and so I would feel that I would have, like, essentially no one to relate to. Um, so what kind of interests, for example, did uh, do you find that they wouldn't relate to you with or that you didn't relate to them with? Um, I think the notion, okay, so sleepovers weren't a thing for me because my mother thought I would get kidnapped at their house. Oh my god, same here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, like, I didn't know that was, because weirdly enough, the first time someone ever invited me for a sleepover was around, like, grade... I think seven or eight. So, mm -hmm. like, I'm a preteen teenager at that age. And so, at that point, I can kind of like make some mature decisions and like have some sensibility. But mm -hmm. no, I asked my mother and she was like, nope, you can't. And I was like, why? She's like, you can stay here. You have a bed at your house. And I'm like, but I want to sleep over there. She's like, nope, what's wrong with your bed here? Oh, wow. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> So, like, I don't know why that's such a thing in Asian culture, just to have no sleepovers. Wow. I know, right? I wish I got invited to a sleepover when I was young. Sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
And so, um, sleepovers were a thing. Um, anime, I think, is a yes. common thing as well. I think, like, just even the music, too. Um, because I felt that I couldn't relate to... I feel like music is a key universal tool that people, all, everyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. But people, they were listening to songs that their parents would listen to. And then what my parents would listen to is... Paris by Night and oh weird variety yeah. Vietnamese shows, and so yeah, I was like, I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was just like, I don't know any freaking song that you're singing right now, and I didn't listen to the radio growing up, and so I was just so lost in that aspect of relating to like pop culture, and so I think just like finding just a common ground between like me and my friends, but also like keeping my own interests to me and not just leaning towards their interests in order for me to fit in. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like a struggle that pretty much every Asian has when they're like coming of age is like this in between cultures and traditions that you have outside of your home and then in your home. It's always like a conflicting internal battle. So what was it like at home culturally? Like were your parents very traditional or did they try to integrate? Um, I think at home they, I think, I would say I had a different Asian experience growing up um, for me versus my brother had a different experience. So I had a very more liberal Asian parenting experience Mm -hmm. where, um, okay, so a little background about me as a child. So I was very much influenced by my older male cousins. And so sometimes they would make uh, bad decisions and influence me. So when I was little, I would steal Pokemon cards and Yu-Gi-Oh cards and all of that stuff. Um, so I was a little bit of a rebel child. And then, Hey, if you're going to steal something, those are awesome things to steal. Yeah, exactly. I was like, these things are cool. I want them. And so one time I stole a kid's um, Pokemon Ruby game from his... Um, Game Boy SP. Mm-hmm. And I was playing it, and my dad looked at my Game Boy and was like, that's not a game I bought you. And then earlier that day, a parent had called all the parents who were at that party and was like, hey, my kid is missing their game. And so my dad realized that I took the game and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then you would think from Asian parenting that they would like take out a belt, a bamboo stick, or some kind of sandal and hit their kid, right? Yeah. So my punishment for stealing a Game Boy game was to simply kneel um, against the wall and look at it for a good like hour or two and just cross my arms. Oh my god. (laughs) I know that one. (laughs) Yeah. It's literally like it wasn't like it didn't hurt. It was just me staring at a wall for like a couple hours until I learned my lesson. It was like a public place, right? Like not like public, but like publicly at home. No, it was like in their bedroom. Oh, yeah, that that's a pretty sad place. Yeah. Yeah, my parents used to send me to a corner in a living room and then I would stand kind of like squatting on an invisible chair for about 30 minutes. Oh, you actually had to do like a, a squat, like a wall sit? But not against a wall. Oh, wow. I had no support. That's that's a lot harsher than uh, my punishment. <laughs> 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 my mom was pretty chill. Mine was just like sitting, like if I, it was kneeling, but if I got tired, I would just sit on my bum and stare at the wall for a couple hours and then pick up the wallpaper. So, <laughs> ah. did it work? Um, 
I, I felt like I still stole some stuff. I think I got out of that phase when I was um, maybe like a teenager, so like 12. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you're little, it's like you don't know better, so they kind of be a little bit more lenient. But as you get more mature, they'll be like, what are you doing? You have a brain. Stop it. <laughs> so you so you're rebellious. Did you also rebel against I guess the cultural traditions that your family practiced? I think I honestly love the cultural traditions that my family had oh. practiced. I think that just set myself as different and more unique to my friends. Mm-hmm. Um just because it was like something that they didn't experience that I could. I had I guess like double holidays in the sense that my family would celebrate some Buddhist holidays and Catholic holidays where they kind of just celebrated Catholic holidays. So I grew up in a a Catholic school, by the way. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. And so they had like all their own traditions. And then it was like really interesting during Christmas time where they would be like, what'd you get for Christmas? And I was like, I usually just get money. I used to get all the red envelopes and stuff like that where they kind of show off like how many gifts they got. So that was kind of like a weird difference, but things that I kind of like mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And um, even I was shy at first introducing my friends to the foods um, in my home mm-hmm. just because, I don't know, they can – it smells weird. It's more exotic. It's more flavorful than what um, – their palate might be used to. Mm-hmm. And so I remember a time where um, one of my good friends came over and my mom was cooking like congee. And then in congee you use like a lot of fish sauce and stuff like that, but it's like really plain. And I was always, I was like really hesitant to like share with my friend. I was like, hey, if you don't like it, it's okay. You know that, right? And I was like kind of reassuring her that like she won't be rude if she says no. And to like my surprise, she actually really, really liked the food. And stuff like that. And so I think it was, yeah. So it was like, I think I had a unique experience where a lot of my, like, white friends were very accepting of my culture and accepting of my own experience and knowing me that I'm different, that they kind of embrace what my cultures and traditions are. That's really nice. And uh, so what kind of, uh, what other traditional foods did your parents cook? Uh, one of my, okay, it's a lot of Vietnamese noodle dishes, so I love, uh, bum bua hue, so it is, like, a noodle dish that has, I don't know, it's, like, spicy, it has a lot of beef in it, um, how else would you describe it, Daddy Gail? Uh, basically, like, the the translation is, like, um, beef noodle from, like, the Hue region, because it's, like, because, like, they're known for, like, their spicy foods, and, like, sometimes there's, like, shrimp paste in there, too, so it's kind of like a, um, Spicy pho, basically. I think that's like the best way to describe it. Spicy pho. Yeah, but the noodles are a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the noodles more are different. The noodles are different yeah. too. Uh, the one thing I don't really get about Vietnamese food here is that people just like jump on like pho and think like pho is like the best Vietnamese noodle dish ever. But I or think, they think it's that a- we're associated with durian. Yeah. And they always order the durian drink, and I'm kind of like, you know, we're kind of more known for, like, the avocado shake. Oh, my goodness, the avocado shake is amazing. I love avocado shakes. Yeah. Uh, I think 
when I first saw people eating avocado without sugar or milk, I was like so confused. I was like, don't you, aren't you supposed to drink that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I think that now everyone's jumping on the um, bun sale train because I think that there was like an Anthony Bourdain like show and they he introduced it. So now everyone's on to that now. And I'm kind of like, there's so much more stuff in Vietnamese culture. Oh, there's so much more stuff. Because, like, I think like, pho is the least flavorful noodle soup out there. I think people should try, like, bông bò quay, which is the beef noodle soup. And then there's mm. uh, bún riêu, which is yes. the crab noodle soup, which is really good. And mm. then I love uh, mi wang, so it's mm-hmm. crab-ish. And it's, like, really... Uh, it has, like, a nice crunch to it as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of noodle dishes from a very, very hot country. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I, think that the reason I wish why I tried pho... more when I was over there. Uh-huh. I think the reason why pho is just really accessible is because, like, one, it's like considered one of the staples, and also, like, if you think about like a, bo- a lot of like quote unquote like ethnic foods, the ones that are popular is the ones that like you can see all the ingredients inside. So, like, for people who are like you know unaware, they want to know what they're eating, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, because all the other dishes, there's, like, so many more spices and Vietnamese ingredients, like, all blended into this noodle soup that makes, like, a weird, like, reddish-brown, maybe, color that people aren't very used to. Yeah, they're not used to it. And also, it's, like, food is not, like, I'm not saying, like, food doesn't need to look good, but I'm just saying because it looks different from what people here are seeing, then it's, like, it's considered weird. And, like, it's not like they're being prejudiced, but it's, like, they kind of already judged Oh yeah, before exactly. even tasting it. Mm-hmm. It's like they made that choice already. Yeah. Wait, Nadia, when you grew up, did you ever have um like rice with I forget what it's called in Vietnamese, but it's like pork floss. Yes, I love that. Yeah, and so you can put that in congee. Yeah, you can put that in congee. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, my mother always loved to make, like, weird jokes with me where she told me that pork floss was actually, like, horse hairs. Oh, my gosh. I think my my mom said that joke to me, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a weird Vietnamese um, mother thing. I'm just like, what? But I'll still eat it because I think it's good. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I think that there was, like, a whole cultural thing, but the joke never landed with me because I think I'm taking it from, like, a literal translation. Oh, same. And then another joke that my mom did was, this is not food related, but I have like a lot of like um, freckles, like dark freckles on my skin. And my mom told me I have those freckles is because flies keep on shitting on me. (laughs) 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 And I was like, where are all these flies coming from? Oh my God. I think my parents said it's from all the mosquitoes that bit my face. And I'm kind of like, well, at least they, at least they like my blood. Yeah, well, at least, like, yeah, at least your parents said biting and not shitting. Like, that's kind of <laughs> mortifying, seeing all these freckles on your, like, body. <laughs> See, the worst I ever got from my mom was telling me that if I swallow a watermelon seed, it would somehow end up in my brain and a trio grot in my head. What? What Whoa. imagery? Yeah, although that's I think one wild. time I was a bit of a smart ass. I was like, well, mom, what if I like the shade? <laughs> that's hilarious so did you take any of those traditions or those foods with you now that you're an adult like do you cook some of those things oh yeah she's an amazing cook oh thank you (laughs) so um yeah i honestly took those um cookings 
back um, when I came to university and started living alone. Because I think um, once I finished university, I started making food for myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then when I would always come home, the only the thing that I missed the most was just like the Vietnamese food and all this homemade food that just made me feel so connected to my culture. Mm-hmm. And so I would make the traditional Vietnamese salad rolls. So it's like what you see with like noodles, lettuce, um, and then shrimp wrapped in rice paper. That's a very common one that people oh, usually eat. Oh, Yeah, Yeah. And then I I make a really good uh, uh, bun riu. So it's the crab oh, noodle soup. Mm-hmm. Um, that one took a while to um, learn and make just because the reason why I don't make a lot of Vietnamese food is because there's so much prep that goes into it, yeah. so many spices and so much, so many ingredients that I'm just like, I'm just one person. I can't finish this all. But if I want to treat myself, I kind of go ahead and make all these. But mm-hmm. this uh, bun riu is a crab dish that initially I have to make a pork soup. So I grab like pork bones from the store and kind of like simmer it and then put it in the fridge overnight. And then I need to get like dried up shrimp and then get crab paste and I get like tofu and tomatoes and kind of like blend that all together to make the broth as well. And then you cook that for a while and then you also have um, your noodles and then your garnishes which is like bean sprouts and cabbage and everything. There's like 20 ingredients that go into this one dish. And so I make it sometimes, so only when I'm treating myself. But it's like a very, very homey feeling when I eat it. And so it makes me very connected to my culture and to my home. Is there a, I guess, simpler Vietnamese thing that you could recommend to any of our listeners who want to kind of dabble into making Vietnamese food at home? Oh, you can, yeah, goi gung, which is the salad rolls. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to make more of an entree, I forget what it's called in Vietnamese, but it's the um, the rice dish where you have rice, a fried egg, grilled chicken, and you put it with fish sauce. That's oh, really, it's really that. Oh, with that um that um baked uh egg thing with the um bay or something broken I, rice. I think is what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah, it's called broken rice. Yeah. Yeah, gum something. But it that's really really so easy. good. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's gom really tam wong, I think. Wait, no, that's not what it is. Um, gom tam or I think something like that. Maybe yeah, I think it's gom tam. Yeah, let me Google so. it. Yeah, it's gom tam. <laughs> so, do you speak Vietnamese? I just I've been realizing that, that you're saying a few words uh, here and there. Um, I I speak a, a little bit of Vietnamese. I'm actually taking Vietnamese lessons. Well, I was before the COVID nineteen <laughs> outbreak. So they're on hold for a little bit, but um, I took, um, the weird thing growing up is like my parents weren't incredibly strict with me learning Vietnamese just because they were learning English themselves. So at home, it was a lot of like English and Vietnamese. And uh, when I went to school, obviously it would be all in English. And so I think that's how um, I just gravitated towards English a little bit more. Um, but I did take Vietnamese school, which I kind of hated because it was just basically um, people who already knew Vietnamese and their parents just wanted them to go into Sunday school and sing random songs and dance. So, <laughs> so That's that what was, happened with me too. 
I, it was really boring. It was really boring. And weirdly enough, I would skip class to go to the library. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a weird thing. Um, maybe that was their plan all along, to get you maybe, to go to the library. Maybe. But one time I did get caught, which was really, really freaking awkward. <laughs> so uh, speaking of school, after high school, uh, where did you go to university and what did you take? Um, so I went to Ryerson University for their radio and television program. Mm -hmm. um, it was called RTA Media Production. And uh, actually, funny story, I actually was choosing between going to Ryerson for media production or I was considering being a physiotherapist too. I think it was just that one so Asian side of me feeling um, that I should gravitate towards a more medical field. And so I think I always had that option. But once I got accepted into Ryerson, I was like, F it. I'm just going to go into media and go to Toronto. Because I think that's what I ultimately knew would make me happy in the end. Well, I'm glad you figured that out early. I actually went to school for human biology and finished my degree before I got the balls to actually jump into acting. Well, did you actually, um, did you end up getting a job in biology or did you just went straight into I actually, so I went from university to then kind of working for two years as I sorted myself up and trying to, I guess, gain the courage to actually make the jump into acting. So I um, got my real estate license, um, took the LSAT just in case I wanted to become a lawyer instead of a doctor. And yeah. And then eventually went to film school. Wow. You kind of gave yourself like multiple options there on where you could fall. My uh, Asian side was strong. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting something stable. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just a little bit different where my Asian, strong, my Asian side wasn't that strong. I was a little bit more adventurous. I always knew I wanted to be a little bit more adventurous mm -hmm. in what I wanted to pursue at the end. And the idea of like happiness over stability um, is what like made my choices of like where I am today. Right. So you mentioned that it was always something that you valued. So so did you know exactly what you want to like wanted to be or did you go to Ryerson into something that was in the area of what you wanted to be or in the yeah. industry? So I think I always knew I wanted to do something with the camera and stuff like that. I think I just love touching things and being a little bit more technical. I had an idea of, like, I wanted to shoot things. But I think going to Ryerson, I was like, hey, let me just be a little bit more open to my options. Mm -hmm. um, just because in different areas of media, there's, like, a range of, like, stable jobs and not stable jobs, essentially. Right. So being um, a cinematographer it's incredibly hard to kind of put your name out there and be recognized as a cinematographer especially as a female just because I think for people in the industry it is a boys club and I feel that males um, hype other males up and would just build each other a little bit more versus with females there's such a small like pool of us that sometimes we don't really know of each other and sometimes it's just us trying to make it on our own and not in this community aspect where I feel that males kind of have. 
And so I had my options of like whether I wanted to direct or produce or something like that. But I think like all the choices I've made led me up to wanting to shoot a lot of things, like being a director of photography and being a cinematographer. I think just like I'm an overall very, very visual person and that's how I communicate to other people. And then I was thinking, yeah, because that's where all my strengths lies. I thought about producing, but then I was like, I don't want to talk to people a lot or like be behind a phone or be behind a desk um, all the time. I actually yeah. want to be on set and touching the camera and kind of like um, morphing this image together uh, with other people. Right. And so. So how are you? Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, how are you finding it since school? I think it's a little bit difficult, but weirdly enough, ever since I graduated school, I've been getting a lot more jobs mm-hmm. um, as in like freelance work. So just a little bit, a little bit more context about me. Um, I am a cinematographer, but I do own a production company called Origins Media House, where we do um, branded podcasts and videos for corporate clients. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was like, I have like all sorts of sides to me where I'm kind of still figuring myself out where it's like, do I want to, I don't know, build a business or build an agency such as Origins Media House, or do I essentially want to um, be a director of photography and go into that full time? And there's like pros and cons to like each side of this, where it's like with the business side, I don't go as much out to like shoots and sets it's more behind like a desk and managing versus being a cinematographer I'm on set all the time right um but there's also like I guess like a little bit of the Asian side is coming out but it's like the stability as well um because like I'm able to make my income from both sides but not one side individually and so I'm just kind of still like working myself out in a sense, it's like, where ultimately do my passions lie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think for me, at my job at Origins Media House, uh, my title is Chief um, creative, chief creative Officer. I sort of like hate the name because it makes me sound a little bit bougie, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> very makes me sound like a very, very important person. But I guess I, guess I, mean, I am. I you're a badass boss lady. Come on. Of course you're oh. important. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, and so where I'm like the chief creative officer where I can, I have the ability to create um, stories that align with our clients' brands and creating that visual aspect of everything. But sometimes it's nice just to like kind of like sit back as a DLP and let the producers do all the work and directors do all the work and mm-hmm. you just focus on one thing. Do you find, because you mentioned the industry is a bit of a boys club, there has been a push for more women in more positions. Have you found that to be more beneficial to you? Has like Have you felt the effect of this push? Um, the effect of them pushing for more women in the industry? Yep. Um, actually, yeah, um, because there's a lot of um, programs and funds out there for women. Um, for example, I did get accepted into a media accelerator in Banff, 
where mm -hmm. they take in um, entrepreneurs um, from media entrepreneurs from all over Canada, mm -hmm. and they kind of um, put them in this program to help them shape their business a little bit more. And uh, their push was like women from diverse backgrounds, and essentially that's what I am being a um, female entrepreneur. And so I feel like that has been a benefit for me. Um, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19, it has been canceled, but that's that's okay. <laughs> um, Hopefully it'll come back once uh, the world goes back, or not back, goes into a new normal. Yeah, it goes into a new normal. <laughs> well, goes into a new normal. New normal, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So you, I, I, you mentioned podcasts. Now, I, I've listened to one of your podcasts, but I heard a plural there. Do you do several podcasts? Yeah. So at Origins Media House, we have about three podcasts. So one is called Hustle Harder. So it's me and my two co-founders talking about what's it like building a business in our early 20s. So we kind of go through um, our ups and downs and what we're kind of and what like internal conflicts we're going through, um, just building a business at a young age, being a woman, we kind of talk about things such like um, how do you balance yourself? Um, how do you, uh, how do we um, make ourselves look credible and how do people take us seriously? And um, some like ups that we've done in our business. So it's a very transparent and raw um, podcast. And then the next one is called The Tech House. So it has um, Fortune 500 executives, such as from like Walmart, Telus, Shopify, and all those companies, and startups talking about emerging tech. And for that podcast, I think our company, we do have a lot of tech clients. And so we kind of wanted to create a podcast that would kind of gear towards those people and have them see the value of podcasting and what can it do for them. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is called What the Peeves. So I'm the main host of it where people just come on and rant about their pet peeves. <laughs> That's the one I listen to. I love it. Yeah. So essentially um, the structure is that um, each episode has a certain theme. So in the first season we have like roommates, dating, being in a relationship, horrible bosses and clients and other stuff. And it's just each episode, there's about like three to four people talking about their own experiences and what they hate. And the goal of the podcast is for people to hear everyone ranting and to make the world a less shittier place by hearing everyone's problems and seeing how we can make ourselves slightly better people. I like that. Yeah, so that's uh, the podcasting side. And it's like, it was really interesting for me to go into podcasting just because I always seen myself as a very visual person, as a director of photography. But I guess like the lesson that I kind of learned here is that as a media creator, you can, it's a lot, you're able to explore different mediums to tell stories and that it's okay for you to explore different areas that you're you're not used to. Like, I might be a cinematographer, but I can also be a podcaster. And I think that just makes us a little bit more unique and have, like, many skills from other areas. So that was my next question. As a cinematographer, what drew you to podcasting? I think 
the side of podcasting that I like a lot is I think there's a side of me that always loves to hear um, to have like conversations with people over like an audio medium and I think podcasting serves a very interesting um, outlook where you can have like very warm and intimate conversations with someone and it sounds like when you're listening to a podcast that you're like having a conversation with a friend over the phone and stuff like that and like we are (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and I think with podcasting um, for example um, being a cinematographer it's like you have to get a whole entire crew together to make a video whereas like podcasting we are simply doing it over Facebook Messenger right now and everyone has their own mic and it's like a very easy thing to kind of like get up and start and just like release content out there. So how can people find your podcast? Um, You can find my podcast on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can just simply type in our podcast names which is Hustle Harder the tech house and what the beef and how do people find your company uh, people can find my company at originsmediahouse.com and house is spelled h-a-u-s um, the german way um, we're not german at all and then people can find me on instagram at uh britney ween and ween is spelled w-e-e-n so now we did get some listener questions for you. Ooh, that's exciting. Night. Yeah. You have yeah, them, right? so okay. Yep. So regarding podcasting, how do you become an awesome podcast host? Oh, that's a really, really good question. I think to become a good podcast host, I would say like start by being good at conversations overall in person and kind of practicing your skills there and how you interview someone. It's like, I think being a really good podcast host is asking actually the right questions in order to get details from someone's story. So really, really listening to what your guest has to say. And then a really good podcast host, I feel like the traits are like, they're relatable, authentic, and genuine Um, because people can hear that through your voice and that is what gets people to come back to you because they like your content, they relate to it, and they just think you're an overall cool person. Alrighty, so here's our next question about podcasting. How do you grow your podcast channel? Uh, I think by, I think the one thing that people forget about podcasting is that they think that they have this idea, they record the interviews and they kind of just like publish it out there and do nothing with their episodes afterwards. Um, But you have to kind of treat each episode as a baby in which you have to give um, each episode care into like promoting it. For example, at um, our company, Origins Media House, every um, episode of What the Peeves, so every episode there's about three guests and each guest has their own individual video. Um, that we post out and so there's like three pieces of content going out for that episode and then we always do like a little teaser too so that's another piece of content number four and then we are and then we uh, share it on our own personal social channels too and so to really grow your podcast is 
also giving your audience more content within your podcast episode and kind of sharing it out there and always keeping your podcast top of mind. Okay, so on the director side, have you ever had to make a kid or baby cry for a shot? If yes, how? <laughs> that is a very interesting question. Um, they kind of just look at me and cry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I guess it's like it all comes back to. Well, I hope like if you're trying to make a baby cry, that the parents are there too. So probably <laughs> their parents would probably know how to make their baby cry. I don't know. Maybe. When babies cry, is like they need something. So if you want to make a baby cry, just take away all their needs. For example, like food or attention or something like that. So kind of just um, going back to the psychology of how we act as humans. So babies cry when they need something. If you want to make a kid cry, it's like giving them a situation. Being like, remember the time where... Um, you got lost in the mall and you couldn't find your mom at all. How'd you feel? Something like that. So when you take my food away, I cry. Does that make me a baby? Yeah. <laughs> a very um, grown-ass baby, but still yes. a baby. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're going to start bringing this podcast to a close. Thank you, Brittany, for uh, being our first guest during our I guess, during the pandemic era. Yeah, no worries. I'm happy to be your first skinny pig pandemic guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, we, we appreciate having you on. We appreciate you taking the time to be here with us and uh, chatting with us. Cool. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. So, Nightingale, how can people find you online? Y'all can find me on Instagram at night.nguyen. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Michael C.W. Chan. And I have my website at www.michaelchan.ca. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay home, stay safe, and stay, stay hungry. This has been Talking With Our Mouseful with Michael Chan and Nightingale Nguyen. The music by bensound.com. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you join us on Instagram and Twitter at at TWMF Podcast. We have a lot of bonus content like food pics, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, and more info about all the places Michael and Nightingale visit. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. A new episode comes out every two weeks. Thanks again for listening, and stay hungry. <laughs>